Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everyone. We talk a lot about the mind-body connection here at MBG. But in this episode, you'll see just how important our thoughts and feelings are for our overall health. Today, we have Dr. Will Cole back on the show. And Will says that anxiety, shame, and trauma can cause as much inflammation as a diet full of ultra-processed foods. Look, if you eat well and exercise regularly, yet still don't feel 100%, trust me, this episode is for you. You'll learn about the sneaky causes of inflammation and how to reduce it in your everyday life with actionable tips and low-cost wellness hacks. If you feel like you've hit a wellness plateau lately, this episode should help you cross the finish line. Will, welcome back. Great to see you. Nice to see you, my friend. It takes a podcast sometimes for us to catch up, but I'm thankful for it. Well, it does take a podcast sometimes to catch up, unfortunately, but I hope to see you in Miami soon. Uh, Congratulations. Gut feelings. Love the title. Love the message. I'm curious, what what, what was the why for you behind this book? As all with any of the books, this is the fourth one. They're born out of just countless conversations that I have with patients. And when you hear things and enough questions being asked and you realize there's this sort of palpable need for answers to be um, put out into the world for questions that are not always easy. And as you know, my day job, my focus is running the telehealth center and really dealing with complex health issues that are not linear. They're not simple. They're not cut and dried. There's a lot of nuance and context to these complex health issues like autoimmune problems, hormonal problems, and things like anxiety, depression, uh, brain fog, and fatigue. So that's where the book really came from. And I would say each book, I've had micro conversations about the topics like with the book prior. So like with intuitive fasting, I talked about these concepts, sort of the mindfulness component of it, because it's so part of my work. These are just bigger, deeper dive expansive conversations on topics that I've always been interested in having with people. There's no question that the gut or physical health impacts our mental and emotional health. You know, the gut-brain axis, we've talked about that a lot. And, and there's also no doubt that our emotional health, our spiritual health, our mental health impacts our physical health, although we don't talk about that as much. On that note, Can you share maybe some anecdotes of people you've worked with who their emotional health was really affecting them physically? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's most of our patients when they meet us, they are eating very clean. They're erudite, well-read people when it comes to health and wellness and listening to the podcast, reading the books, educating themselves in the latest PubMed scientific journals. But they are still struggling with things that I kind of refer to as like the dark corners of wellness. They're they're not really like looking at everything. And it's some it's tough to be the person that's going through a health issue, 
but also be your own health advocate and being your own doctor and navigator. So to, for us to act as that role for them as someone outside that's collaborating on their health and are objectively looking at this stuff. So certainly there are still things to deal with for those people whether it is fine-tuning the food protocol, like it's they're better off than they would be if they weren't doing all the things they're doing, but objectively some nuance and uh, tailoring for the food protocol or adding in some additional supplementation or some biohacking protocol that we know to be effective. Yes, on the physiological side, there are some tweaks and optimizations to do. But on the feeling side, I find that for many of our patients, they know it intellectually, but they don't really go there so much. They almost gaslight themselves and making light of something that should deserve their full attention, that they're not really giving it the full, they don't realize the full impact it's playing on their health. So that could look like chronic stress for someone. Like it's just so common for them that they normalize it and they think I'm not that stressed. And they, we ask them like zero to 10, like how would you rate your stress? And they say four or five, but you really talk to them. It's like, no, it's just been going on for so long. And they're typically higher performing, resilient people anyways. So therefore is someone else's 10 and, um, or it's, the uh, past traumas. One of the things we ask patients is adverse childhood experiences and really looking at these things that, you know, we're getting pretty intimate pretty quickly when you're first talking to them online, like, like we're talking now at telehealth. And we're talking about was there sexual abuse growing up? Was there physical abuse growing up? Was there substance abuse in the household growing up? Was there just neglect uh, growing up? These sort of latchkey kids, as they call themselves, that they kind of spend their entire childhood that a single parent and they really were left to fend for themselves. But research shows the higher the A score, you're more likely to have different autoimmune problems, metabolic issues, a hypervigilant nervous system later on in life. So there are countless stories of that. It's just a matter of what are the pieces to your health puzzle? It's going to be different for everybody. And so how much of it in your patients, is it, is it everyday stress? Is it trauma? as in big T and little t, whether it's, you know, we're coming out of a banking crisis or COVID or, or, or intergenerational trauma, uh, trauma that was passed on or, or childhood trauma. Like if you think about those in buckets in terms of, you know, everyday stress, uh, trauma, big T, little t, then we've got the intergenerational, and then we've got the childhood. Like how do you, are you seeing one at the top of that list or? It's really for most people, it's a confluence of the, all those things and something that I really got to do a deep dive in gut feelings because it is all of it. But it's it's so bio-individual, right? It's like, well, for some people will tell me their current life situation, they, they'll say this same sentence. Everybody says it. I have nothing to be stressed about. I have nothing to be unhappy about. And they they really do mean that. But so for them, typically the people that say that, it's past stuff that's going on. That they really, they know it was bad. They know it wasn't good. But they don't realize what it did to their mitochondria. They don't realize what it did to their nervous system and their inflammation levels. So I would say that the past trauma, the let's just say unresolved past trauma is a probably a bigger more um, insidious one because so many people will just gaslight themselves again and say, well, it's, I know people that have gone through worse than me. 
you know, I didn't get, I didn't go through a genocide. Like it's, it's that sort of comparing to something worse than yourself, or they know it's not good, but they don't really, they're not aware of the research of how it could impact your health today. They think it was just stuck in the past. It was something in the past. And, and then of course, part of that is intergenerational trauma too, which is even more to unpack. Like the impact that our ancestors, what the experiences of our ancestors, how is that physically impacting our health today? Which the science around that that I talk about in the book is just, it sounds science fiction, but actually is really based in a lot of evidence-based literature. You know, when you think about it, the practice of saying to oneself after experiencing a trauma to say, you know, it could have been a lot worse, I'm fine. It's generally like a good, a good practice. You know, I'm so lucky you got into a car accident. I'm so lucky I'm okay. Could have been could have been a lot worse versus the person who walks out and says, you know, the car is wrecked. This is terrible. This is such a pain in the ass. Like, I, I think it's better to be the person who walks away saying, I'm so lucky to be alive. I'll, I'll deal with it all good. But you can't ignore the trauma at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. It's a balancing of acknowledging it, but still having grace around it and i think that that's the balancing it's not easy it's same with like guilt and shame and the difference between the two right i mean if someone does if you accidentally hurt somebody or out of you know egoic whatever you were irritable one day and you acknowledge the fact that you hurt somebody that is guilt and some people can feel that but shame is an indictment on who you are not what you did and i think a lot of times that same sort of concept can happen around past traumas it's like it's one thing to acknowledge it, but it's not who you are. People don't want to go to those dark corners sometimes because they think, you know, that it's scary. It's overwhelming to really uh, untangle these things that are very much entangled. So you mentioned shame and you, you coined a term, which I love in the book, shame flammation. Let's talk about shame flammation. Yeah. You know me with my words. I, I, so much of my job is like education and I see myself as a teacher in many ways for my patients. So I, I wake up in the land. I'm like, yes, that's the way, that's how to, you just say it. Cause I see it play out on patients' lives all the time. I see it play out on labs all the time. The people that, when I ask them, what's the context of these labs? How are you feeling whenever you got this lab? And it's, yes, food is part of it. But also it's sleep and stress and like what was their emotions going on? Because we know things like stress and shame and trauma will spike these interleukins, these inflammatory proteins, which C-reactive protein, high sensitivity C-reactive protein are is a surrogate lab for many of these interleukins that are it's a pro-inflammatory state. So I talk a lot about it in the book of how things like shame will raise inflammation levels, will dysregulate our immune system, which inflammation is a product of, and will dysregulate our nervous system, impacting that hypervigilant, sympathetic overactivation. So shameflammation is really just my made up word on the commentary of the mind-body connection of how our thoughts, our words, our experiences will influence our physiology. And our body is a cellular library and our thoughts, our words, and our experiences will be the books that fill up those those cells. The, so that is um, that's really what shame formation is about. And I, I find that that shame is a, a very common feeling to varying degrees, and it manifests in different ways for different people. But the underlying commonality, oftentimes, is some sort of shame when it comes to unresolved trauma. Certainly, that's an obvious one, right? There's a lot of shame. And from that, they just don't want to go there. They're a little bit defensive or they're making, like they're gaslighting themselves. But chronic stress, there's a lot of shame around chronic stress in someone's current life today, right? If they are maybe not 
able to be present with their family because they're stressed. They're kind of irritable and snapping at their partner or not spending being present with their children or not eating foods that love them back because they're kind of getting the quick things because they're hustle, hustle, hustle running on, on the go. So there's a lot of shame around that too. Like, wow, like uh, my life is just incongruent with how I want to be because I'm so stressed and busy. So shameflamation is really, whether it's a current situation or a past situation or both, it is an underlying piece of the puzzle where I see people eat all the right foods, do all the biohacking stuff, but they're feeding their body this big slice of shame every day that's perpetuating that inflammation just as much as that food that doesn't doesn't love you back. Well, what do you think about this idea in our space where you know someone really is doing all the right things and then they get really stressed about it and it, and it can cross over to orthorexia very quickly whereas the, there, there are these such high expectations are, are you know am i doing enough or you know oh my god i accidentally had a seed oil and it's going to take forever to get out of my system or you know i i i had too many cookies or you know i think it can go various directions and it could be really upsetting to people and kind of negate some of the the benefits at least i believe that of all the good stuff you're doing totally and that's a, another big part of what i talk about in gut feelings is people's relationship with themselves ultimately their and their relationship with their body and their relationship with food because this always the checking point like they, these are the constant conversations that i'm having with patients of checking with themselves like what are your most effective needle movers in your toolbox like what are the things that are going to really get you feeling a great life and feeling great in your body and loving your life and nourishing yourself on all levels and it can start out with the best of intentions but get to really in a nefarious malignant uh, obsessive place of which shame inflammation really can be born out of somebody's wellness journey, right? Then, like you said, it's like, oh my gosh, the the plant defense and nutrients, or the the lectins and the fatty acid and the alkaloids and and the gluten and the whatever, all the stuff. It's like, yes, we we have amazing information. Yes, we can learn about these things, but ultimately, also context matters, and also. Is this even relevant for you? And also more isn't always better. And like doing all the things, it doesn't mean it's, it may be right for somebody else, but isn't necessarily right for you. So I'm constantly editing for my patients of like, what are the most relevant for you? You can learn about something, but if that learning about something, you automatically think it's, it's, it's about you and you have to do it. That's the problem is people hear about all the things and then just get, the supplement graveyard grows and sort of the foodless shrinks and it really can get to an orthorexic place, which just is antithetical to wellness. And we have to check ourselves and ask ourselves, why are we even doing this? If we started to do this to feel better, or to, to deal and support something within our health, but then we've lost our way. So it really, in part, gut feelings was a conversation for the people for the wellness community because these are the people that I talk to and and it's nuanced because it's when you're going through real health issues I get it we need to get out of the woods but there's a you to strike a balance where it's not okay let's then go to the other end of the spectrum I agree and I think something that and I'll speak from experience as being I think a health forward person needs to do a better job of is 
you know, listen, trying to really tune into how we feel and maybe paying less attention to a number on a chart or a lab. And in my experience, you know, I, I, I've taken it too far. I'll, I'll give an example, uh, which I've shared on the show and I'll, I'll share again. Um, one of my best friends I played basketball with in college, all of a sudden I find out has colon cancer. And it's, oh my God, you know, it, it hits home, contemporary, 40, 47, 48 years old. And I, I reach out immediately. How are, you know, first of all, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing chemo, treatment's working. And I said, well, how did you know? And what tipped him off was his iron levels dropped precipitously. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And he was forced to do a colonoscopy and then they found it and so forth. And so simultaneously, I had done blood work a couple of weeks ago with, with Frank Lipman. And I get the results back like a couple of days after I have this conversation. And my iron levels had dropped precipitously. And all of a sudden, I'm like, holy cow. Is this, was this you know, a, a message? Do I have the same thing? Is this my tip off? Oh, my God. And, and, and because they dropped, the, the advice was you should do a colonoscopy. And I'm over, you know, I think it was 47 at the time or 46. And so I say, oh, okay. Although it was, I was very conflicted internally where I'm saying to myself, I'm not my friend. I'm in, you know, he, he, I'm much better shape. I take care of myself and so forth. But like, maybe this is a sign. And so like, very unlike me, I just start like freaking out about this. And I am so anxious. I'm able to get the colonoscopy like pretty quickly within like a two week period. Leading up to the colonoscopy, I start like fully experiencing like digestive symptoms, like pain in my stomach, like I'm like something's wrong. And then I get to the colonoscopy and it's like delayed. It's supposed to be first thing in the morning. And I'm sitting on like the gurney for like three hours and then I'm about to go in and my blood pressure is like fucking sky high <laughs> and my blood pressure is totally normal. I'm like, yeah, no shit. I'm like totally nervous. And, and they're like, we can do the endoscopy too. I'm like, do both. Turns out I'm totally clean. And the, the iron level to this day is a little bit of a medical mystery. And I'm just like, all right, who knows? I'm fine. But to me, it was, it was a wake-up call. And they're like, wow. I let this one number on a, pay, on, a, on a report completely destroy me mentally and emotionally and, and, and physical symptoms on myself. And I'm pretty educated on this. I was like, wow. It was a train wreck. So I'll pause there. Like, I don't think. <laughs> You're not alone. You're not alone on many levels. I mean, that's, that's really been happening. Look, I love health information. I think that we, the democratization of health information, the decentralization of health information is really good. And I think people should be able to have information, free information, free speech, free writing, and for, for them to educate themselves and be savvy consumers, right? Um, but we need to empower people, you know, we need to empower people to, and you did the right thing. And it's sort of that processing of what do I do? You took that proper action step. You did what your doctor told you to do, but it's all of that. You know, it's easy to go down to that tailspin of, well, this could be a sign or like, I, why would mine drop? I totally, I see it play out in patients' lives all the time of, fear and anxiety around health and especially when you don't feel good like you felt fine until um you know the stress of it all 
Exactly. I was fine until I saw this number and I'm like, oh my God. And look, I mean, there's just, I think that's a good point too. With iron deficiency, there are a, a lot more common reasons than sort of the rarity, like to go, yes, you should rule out the rare thing or the less common thing, but not necessarily the first obvious thing, but you don't know until you rule it out and you did. But I think that's really a good example of that sort of nocebo effect in many ways too. Could people get, all right, you get it in your head or gets someone gets the falsely like uh, accidental di misdiagnosis and it's in the scientific journal of people eliciting symptoms because of that mind body mind over matter connection and just as the placebo effect is researched very well researched of how someone's own thoughts about the treatment or the health condition will impact results positively the nocebo effect really shows the opposite there's reports in certain journals talking about somebody getting a false diagnosis was misdiagnosed of a terminal illness and months later passing away only to find with the autopsy that they never had it it was just that ruminating thought of destroying their health that uh did it so that's the power of the mind power of our emotions on our physical health i'm sorry you went through that that's horrible it, it was totally fine. As I would say, it was trauma. I'm totally fine. It's all good. It is all good. It was a, it was a valuable lesson and reminded me of, you know, one of our mutual friends, Lisa Rankin, her book, Mind Over Medicine, filled with stories of the nocebo and placebo effect and so powerful. Yeah, I, I'm curious, while writing this book, were there, were there any things you changed in your personal life? I would say the the research around, I love history and myself, I, I'm Enneagram 5, I love researching, it helps me with my patients and like my work, but I also love history and researching that. So the really digging into the research around intergenerational or transgenerational trauma was mind blowing to me. I knew about it, I've talked about it on social media, I've talked about it with patients, but to read all the studies done, whether it was the Ukrainian genocide man-made famine in the early 20th century or the holocaust in poland and germany or the rwandan genocide in the 90s it is so fascinating to me how people could have gone through these atrocities not only impacted them and their health but was passed on to their descendants two three beyond generations down uh these methylation variants these the way that the body is expressing itself in the form of metabolic issues hormonal problems autoimmune problems and mental health issues. That is staggering to me. So that really got me thinking, wow, thinking of all the thousands and thousands of patients that I've seen over the years, how much of our health, and science is just scratching the surface right now, how much of our health is really this sort of, I don't wanna say karmic in a way, but it is this epigenetic heirloom of we are just kind of continuing on these cycles of experiences from one generation to the next. Is there anything you've decided to tweak in your own life where you said, you know, maybe I'm overdoing it here or maybe not paying enough attention over here? For me, it, it's, I upped my amount of breath work that I'm doing, uh, the, the research of it sort of metabolizing stored trauma. Cause I know my family had some messed up ish. Like I just know a little bit about it to know, okay, whether it's my past trauma, my current stress, or some intergenerational trauma, to a certain degree, it doesn't really matter. But to know it's there, you have to really know what you're dealing with to a certain degree to deal with it and face it. Uh, so to go there with holotropic breathwork 
is definitely something that I didn't do before. But in researching this book, I really gave it the credence. I knew it intellectually for patients, but I didn't practice it myself. And that's something that I definitely integrated into my life since while writing the book and since then. Breathwork is just so powerful. And one of the reasons why I love it, uh, it's a real time tool. You could be in a, you know, I love meditation, but you could be in a very stressful conversation and you can go to your breath work depending on the, you know, depending on what, what type, but you could go to your, 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 your box breathing or your inhale for two exhale for four. And the person a foot away from you will have no idea. You can't say, all right, let me go do my TM. I'm going to come back in 20 minutes and then we'll have the conversation. That's powerful. Yeah, absolutely. It's a way to anchor yourself in the present moment, which meditation does too, right? I mean, breath and meditation are so intertwined, but it is a very much a somatic experience too. It is a, a really good, I mean, depending on the type that you're doing, but specifically this holotropic breath work, which probably would be not as accessible to do when you're at work. I think the box breathing and these other sort of methods are more appropriate for everyday uh, routines, which I definitely do in between patients, consulting patients as well. But these bigger, like maybe let's call them more advanced uh, breathwork class, they are profoundly uh, somatic. They are profoundly a, a way to strengthen that parasympathetic, which many of us, me included, it's not doing the best all the time. You know, we are in that fight or flight stress state. Even if we love what we're doing, our culture is sort of like geared towards that, plus the distraction and numbing and all the dopamine sort of dysregulation that happens there too. But to as a to me, I see breath work as a sort of vagal nerve exercise that's really kind of I feel so much more rested and digested. Like everything's working. My gut brain axis is a lot more regulated after a breath. And that's why I spend it's such an integral part to the protocol in the book. So something else I really enjoyed in the book, you mentioned culture and you know, we tend to think about cleanses in terms of restrictive dieting but you're doing an amazing new cleanse it's it's unfriending unkind people let's talk about that cleanse yeah it's the best man it's the best it's not just about foods that don't love you back it's also about like social media accounts that aren't just loving your your mental health back right and then maybe that not that person's even intention right it's it's the nature of social media certainly sometimes it is right it is directed towards you but you know we have to really edit our life like what are we exposing ourselves to because that also can impact our nervous system and inflammation levels and in therefore our endocrine system or hormonal system so yeah as I, I mentioned that unkind people fast uh for sure i think these regularly people should be vetting the people that they're following what are they showing up in their feed and then on some platforms like tiktok for example it's just being fed to you right it's the algorithms feeding predominantly people audiences that they think you would like but some people you're following i mean really even editing that so the algorithm hopefully can start ser stop serving you things that are really not congruent with your wellness um so it is uh it's something that i think we all should do more of this episode is brought to you by shopify forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to shopify the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, 
all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So on that note of people who aren't loving you back and TikTok, you know, I have to ask, you know, recently you did an interview with Gwyneth Paltrow in which she outlined her routine and, and it's gotten a lot of a blowback. And, you know, in the interview, she, you know, she's got an IV. Um, she talks about, she does intermittent fasting. Uh, she has coffee or green juice, starts the day with 20 minute meditation, uh, works out for an hour. And I believe it was sauna, uh, dry brushing, and then lunch, soup, bone broth, and then a paleo dinner. And oh, you're, you're the only one because you work with her and her like has the full context as the why behind routine, but can see the, the controversy in that the knock on wellness, our world is that it takes too much time. It's too expensive or people can take things too far, which can result in orthorexia. So I'll just pause there. What, what are your, you know, this is like, you know, blown up in a way that's, it's, I'll, I'll leave it at that. What, what are your thoughts? It's a, a hyperbolic to say the least. And I, you know, I, I'm, I guess I'm naive to a certain degree because this has happened before with certain book releases and conversation really was centered around wellness and kind of the, some of the topics that I talk about in gut feelings. And I thought, now this is really benign of someone's relationship with food and really looking at your head, not just what you're feeding your body, but what are you feeding your head and your heart and these concepts of regulating the nervous system and calming and stress hormones and stuff like that. So I knew it, the context around the conversation. And my question to her was, what is your wellness routine look like now? Like give us like a snapshot perusing as a, of a day in the life. Um, I did not ask her for a specific diet inventory, a breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Give us the calories. Give us the macronutrients to, to like allow the, the the keyboard warrior trolls to to then offer it up to them on social media. And I think that that's the first thing is just notice the question that I asked, and she was just giving a sort of spattering of the things that she had, right? As she wasn't giving a full inventory of her whole entire day, which I know what it is. She's eating until satiety. She's eating nourishing foods until she's full. She's well fed. There's she loves to eat. She loves food, and she's very open about that. Um, we talk about pizza later on in the conversation, and I mean, there's just so much. I think lacking when you know when you're running a podcast and having conversations with people. Sounds like yeah, I have this, this, and this. Like these are the type of foods that I have, and then you can get kind of lose train of thought because we then talk about something else, and we didn't go back to that thought and really give out. And that wasn't even my question to begin with. So I think it says a lot about our culture where things get taken out of context. And then on top of that, even if somebody listened to the entire conversation, which we do talk about vegetables and fruits and carbs and proteins and fats and all the other things, the clip was just clip. It was a clip like anything else. It, it is It is not the entire conversation. So I think it is, it's so ironic because part of the conversation that we were having was this toxic social media culture where people are keyboard warriors. They would never say it to your face, but they'll stitch it up on TikTok and just ruthlessly just say horrible, dark things. Um, so I think it's, it says more about our culture than anything else. And at the same time, I'm very sensitive to the fact that 
we were talking about one person's experience. We were not telling everybody this is what they had to do. And ultimately, you don't know what somebody's going through. You know, I have so many patients and 99% of my patients are regular, regular people that have normal nine to five jobs. They are school teachers. They are nurses. They are people that have to budget for their groceries and have to go to work and find childcare for their kids. Those are the 99% of people that I talk to. They're in the same boat as Gwyneth Paltrow. And we, they're all trying to figure this out and feel better. And we're, as I said earlier, like, part of my job is editing things down. Like, what is the biggest needle mover for you? More isn't always better. And um, yeah, I mean, I, and I think the things that she talked about, I, my patients get sauna, like they can't afford the big sauna, maybe they're getting the sauna blanket, or maybe they're just taking a hot bath. We can find economical, affordable, accessible things. I teach my patients that are on a budget, how do you shop healthily at Aldi, at Costco, at Walmart, at Target, online, at a farmer's market? We know how to do it based on someone's budget. You don't need all the things, but to somehow say, okay, because someone that's in Hollywood that therefore everybody has to do it. And if you don't do it, you're a bad person. That's not on her. She's not saying that about them. So it's this sort of, I think, uh, constantly almost being addicted to being offended, addicted to being triggered and really spewing out every thought that comes into your head because it's, there's so much anonymity on social media. So it's really, a, a, to me, a commentary on the state of our social health and how we treat other people at the end of our keyboard. Yeah, on that note, it's like I, I can see how, you know, look, she's got a lot of resources financially. She's got time. She can do all this. And I can see how the average person can say, like, this is impossible. But, you know, hitting on, you know, I think the cultural issues, specifically with algorithms and TikTok, um, there's a study we, we reference in the, the book that Colleen and I wrote that's coming out in a couple months, Joy of Wellbeing, where at Wharton, they analyzed the most emailed list of the New York Times to see like, what, what, what were there certain qualities in terms of emotion? And they looked at anger, awe, and anxiety. And the number one factor for determining virality, essentially the emotion would lead to being the most emailed article in the New York Times, essentially like being viral, was anger. Anger increased virality by, I think, 34%. So just if you think about this, the platforms and TikTok, what drives engagement is yeah. anger. Oh my gosh. Wow. That breaks my heart. It really does because you see it and people are almost slaves to the algorithm. They don't even realize that they are they are being served content to tap into anger, their own anger. And it's weaponized on social media and magnified just, and just, and just, I'm always surprised at how dark it can be. Hopefully the algorithms can do better because you go on some social media platforms. It's like, it's really, it's weird actually right now going through this. Instagram is very light and airy. Yes. There's some conversation. Yes. There's some freedom yeah. of speech. <laughs> I don't know if I describe Instagram as light and airy, but I, I... Yeah, right. Maybe right now for me. I mean, I've seen it dark and nefarious, but right now, I get, I don't know. But I, TikTok's like another beast, but I think it's how they're serving it and who they're serving it to to sort of amplify this sort of collective 
troll beast. Like it's it's interesting. Yes, all social media is serving is tapping into these negative emotions. I get that hundred percent. But yeah, it's I don't know the solution because I am such an ardent advocate for freedom of speech. I just think we need to teach people context and kindness, but also offer freedom of speech. Yeah, I, I don't even have TikTok on my phone. I took it off. I uninstalled it. I uninstalled it because of this. Because I'm like, you know what? It's just noise. It's really not good for regulating my nervous system. That's what I'm talking about in gut feelings. Like I'm practicing what I talk about in the book. Like it is, it's a little bit of a digital detox for me right now because it's just not good. And no matter what situation we're in, I think that we all can check ourselves with our relationship with technology. You know, and I think it's an important point to make. You mentioned some of the 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 low cost or no cost practices we can incorporate. Cause look, I I get the 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 big objection where health and wellness is expensive and timely. You know, we talked about breath work. Um a favorite of well, a favorite of mine, which I don't actually do because I don't like it. You know, cold plunges are all the range, all the rage these days, but take a cold shower. It's free. You know, what else comes to mind and to mind for you in terms of, you know, things that are, that are low cost or no cost, which really do have great benefit? Oh, my goodness. I would say the vast majority of things that I talk about in the book are free or low cost. I didn't plan on that. I'm just was showing what the research is showing. It just so happens that a lot of exciting research is being done on these free and low cost things. So there's a. 21 day protocol in the book to just it really in, introduce yourself to what the research is showing of ways to strengthen that vagus nerve, the largest cranial nerve in the body that's responsible for the resting, digesting, calm mechanism in the body, a way to calm stress hormones in your body, this sort of neuroendocrine connection. Uh, and and be that vagal nerve exercise to strengthen that parasympathetic aspect of the autonomic nervous system. So every day they have a gut and a feelings action item. They have a physical and a mental, emotional, spiritual side of that conversation to support both sides of that same coin. And some of the feeling stuff, I mean, things like breath work, completely free. Meditation practices that I teach about in the book, completely free. Other than your time, I get it. People will say, well, I'm so busy. Well, we're, some of these practices are 5, 15 minutes. The things that the average Westerner does for 5 to 15 minutes, please. We all have that. So uh, um, forest bathing, the research around forest bathing. And even if you don't, if you live in an urban area and don't have access to some grass, some trees, and let alone a forest, picture, research shows even pictures of nature can be a meditative, calming space. So on all levels, these are free or low cost things. Or um, I talk about cold plunges and how it regulates. I mean, we implement and implement that into many patients' protocols as a way to regulate their nervous system. Completely free. You don't have to buy the fancy white uh, cold plunge. You can just get a cold shower. You can, and that's very free for your heating bill. So, uh, and or, or get a metal bin. I have some patients that just get, get a metal bin, put some ice in it and do it that way. Very low cost ways to do it. And as I mentioned earlier, I, sweating is within the protocol in the book. As with patients, there's the higher end saunas, but maybe it's gonna be the sauna blanket. Maybe it's just working out and sweating that way or maybe it is a hot Epsom salt bath and doing it that way. We're talking about really, no matter what price point you're talking about, 
These are free and low cost things. There's many other things that I talk about in the book, but uh, those are some. On the gut side, soups and stews. You are, it's a really easy way to get a lot of fruits, it's got it, sorry, a lot of uh, vegetables and a lot of protein into one meal. You can batch make it, you can meal prep, you save money in the long run of not eating out. And it, a little goes a long way as far as supplementing your meal with the soup or having it as a meal. Um, so those are some ways. And, you know, the bone broth, if it's more expensive to buy the bone broth already made, but you can make your own uh, using the chicken that maybe you already had and using the bones like our ancestors would have done to be more economical and reusing food. And then there's plant-based options for people as well. So, yeah, those are some of the, the things that I... I talk about and think about within the book. So the, the title is Gut Feelings. And if we were to separate gut from feelings and look at, you know, whole, whole body health, is it 80% gut, 20% feelings or vice versa? How do you think that pie slices? It's so that is a very much a individual situation. So I have patients where I run labs and you really look at the landscape of where they're at, like their gut looks pretty good for the most part, but that yet their inflammation levels are really high and their hormones are all dysregulated and they feel wired and tired. For them, those physiological markers that are off, their HPA axis is off, the brain adrenal axis is off, their estrogen, progesterone, testosterone is off, um, and these inflammation levels are high. For those people, that is an obvious indication that maybe their high pressure job or their high ACE score, their adverse childhood experience score is contributing to their dysregulation on their nervous system and their endocrine system and their, their inflammation levels. Um, and for some people, it's very obvious that they are a score is zero. They went through nothing as it like they are the unicorn when it comes to childhood uh, and there's there no stress in their current life. It's all, it's nearly all physiological. Those people may tell me, well, I'm stressed, but I'm stressed about not feeling well. That's completely different, right? It's like they're stressed about their physical health or they're anxious about their physical health. Like who wouldn't feel like that in that situation? So for them, it's more circumstantial around their physical health. And we have to deal with the underlying gut issues or whatever it may be, mold toxicity, Lyme disease, um, things like that to deal with it, to heal. For most people, it's going to be a bit of both. And that pie chart's going to be different. And it's just going to be a, a combination, a confluence of both the gut and the feeling stuff. You know, if you would have asked me a year ago, I probably would have said that nutrition and exercise, you know, the physical are the absolute critical foundation and we'll get you 80% there. And then the remaining 20 was spiritual emotional mental i would put environmental maybe i give it a little maybe maybe environmental 20. so i call it six, 60 physical 20 mental spiritual emotional and then 20 environmental that, that that would roughly have been my pie and i think i flipped in in my view today i think mental, spiritual, and emotional are probably at 40 to 50%. And I think nutrition and exercise are probably at, I, I would 
I would put it at 30 to 40 and then the rest. And so I, I think I flipped on that coming out of the pandemic and just seeing the mental health epidemic and all the sorts of metabolic dysfunction and disease and just what can happen. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that for many people that is the case. And if you think about it like this, oftentimes our, what we're feeding our head and our heart, and it may be ruminating th stuff from our past, that mental, emotional, spiritual side of things will oftentimes inform how the food choices that we make. So it's like, yeah, I think if you take that perspective, yeah, if you get, if you regulate someone's nervous system and, and give them tools to ground themselves and really that some of the research that I talk about in the book about on self-compassion and gratitude, what will that do to the food choices they make for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Yeah. So if you see that as like the seed of the choices that they make, we could probably go even higher for the feeling side of things. You know, it's interesting. We haven't aired this this pod yet, but I had Jillian Michaels on and we were talking about The Biggest Loser and, and talking about some of the extreme cases of obesity, like extreme, like this is life or death. I got 100, 200 pounds to lose and this is a life or death situation. And in summary, I want everyone to listen to the show, but for those people who have so much weight to lose, like this is way beyond nutrition and exercise. Like you need you need a psychiatrist, you need a therapist. Like there's some, there's some deep, there's some deep stuff that needs to be worked through. Absolutely. I mean, something that I talk about in the book around, and I've seen be game changing for those type of people is EMDR, the specific type of therapy, eye movement, reprogramming basically at the limbic system. It can shift things in it's so it never ceases to amaze me what it can do to food sensitivities and metabolic issues and people that were just could not whether it's lose the weight or lower the inflammation levels or you know decrease their flare-ups it wasn't until they dealt with the whether it be seeing a therapist for this to use this example that they were able to even stopping stop the self-sabotage to stop the the self-sabotaging behavior with the foods that they're eating or the things that they were ingesting in some way so, so for those not familiar you gotta walk us through what emdr is briefly yeah so it's a growing field uh, of psychiatry therapy that i believe was popularized in the 1980s so it's nothing new uh it's just i think becoming more accessible and more um talked about within certain corners within our space of wellness and it involves specific eye movement and kind of reprogramming past experiences to in a way so I, I would include i don't know if emdr specialists would include this as a somatic experience but i would uh, and what i've seen with patients it's using eye movement to reprogram the nervous system and in a way metabolizing clear out past trauma so the nervous system isn't stuck in that hypervigilant state. It's really, in a way, strengthening that vagus nerve. And the mechanism of action, in many studies, will tell you we don't know exactly how, how, it's, how it works, but the, the science is very clear. The results are very clear as far as, it being, as far as it being a very effective tool for people that have gone through childhood trauma or uh, PTSD through a military war uh, or any really big T trauma that people may have gone through. So of all the, the tools available in our wellness toolkit in 2023, and there are so many, 
What's underrated in your opinion? What should we be paying more attention to? A lot of the feeling stuff is, I think, something we should be paying more attention to. And that's why, in part, why I wrote the book, because I feel like for the average type A aficionado, they will see it as being something superfluous. Like, yes, it's important, but like you were saying, like the nutrition, the exercise, the biohacking technology, the more stuff is more important than this stuff because it almost seems less sexy or less effective, less prescriptive, certainly, less linear, less Western. Um, and I feel like th that oftentimes, as we kind of said, will inform the decisions that you make, but it also will modulate your biochemistry just in and of itself, even without you making any decisions from a more regulated state. You will see physiological changes, i.e. like better circadian rhythms of the cortisol rhythm or lowered inflammation levels and better mood and energy levels just from tapping into some of these feeling, these acts of stillness that I call in the book. So I think that that's something, and, and the good news is, as I said earlier, these most of these things are free or low cost. So that is, I think, promising for the people that shade wellness that I think that we don't have to be inaccessible. We don't have to, you know, only uh, be talking about things that are super expensive and elitist. We can really look at these things that no matter who you are, no what, no matter what socioeconomic background you are, we're all in the same boat, and we have access to these things like breath, like nature, like meditation. And is there anything in your opinion that is overrated that possibly we're overemphasizing? No, I don't. I don't, I, cause I, I could say some things, but I feel like for some people, it's a really effective tool. I'll say one thing, right? That, that can be overrated and it's not overrated for everybody, but it's peptides. I have used peptides myself. I've experimented with it, with it. I have patients that use it and it has been a game changer for them for a season of their life. But I feel like, especially within the biohacking community, it's always the new, 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 new. It's always the next thing that they take. And it's this magic bullet, right, that, that you need to get access to. And it's not always legal in every place. There's definitely legalities when it comes to this conversation, too. But there are clinics that offer peptides and things like that. I feel like um, that isn't always a needle mover for everybody. And I feel like, yes, it can it be a tool within your toolbox. Uh, certainly, but I feel like uh, when I see these, like the next biohacking thing, sometimes it can be a bit overrated for the average person. That doesn't mean you shouldn't talk to your doctor about it and maybe experiment with it if you're a good candidate for it. But I haven't seen it be this panacea for everybody across the board. And just for clarity, you're speaking about peptide injections, not collagen peptides. Yes, not collagen peptides. Yeah, I'm talking about peptide injections. And there's many out there. And a lot of exciting research around it. I'm not saying there's not promise around it, but it is a tool within the toolbox. It's not a replacement for these more foundational things. So I always love a good grocery list. What, what are your top five gut feeling foods that we should enjoy? Uh, soups and stews. I, I think it's day one or one to three in the protocol in the book, the gut action item is really centered around lots of soups and stews and something that I've implemented in patients protocols for years is something called the gaps protocol or the gut and physiology syndrome for people with autoimmune conditions or gut and psychology syndrome, the gut brain axis. So bone broth based soups, if you eat meat, 
Um, it could be if you're pescatarian, there's fish broths, which isn't so common in the United States, but is really common in other parts of the world. So if you're pescatarian, there is an option for you there. But wild, you know, um, organic chicken broth, grass-fed beef broth are really good nourishing things. From a protein standpoint, I see a lot of people that have these hypervigilant nervous systems and immune systems from past trauma, stress, and underlying gut problems, and a combination of both, that's causing a lot of food reactions to a lot of protein. So bone broth protein is one great way to nourish, satiate the body, but not irritate the gut. Um, and then it's a way to get a lot of vegetables in, fiber-rich vegetables within your meals that are easier to digest. It's almost pre-digesting foods. So instead of having lots of raw vegetables, which is nothing inherently wrong with that, for somebody that's looking to recover and heal and nourish their gut-brain axis, it may, make it may take time until you reintroduce more raw vegetables. So for a time, it's sort of this proverbial siesta for your gut-brain axis and kind of taking the work out of, of digesting lots of raw things, it's, but still having them in the form of soups and stews. For people that have extra sensitive digestions, systems, digestive systems, we have them even puree their vegetables and start with lower FODMAP typically if somebody has SIBO. Um, and then lots of protein in there as well. Um, so I would say that should be on your shopping list. And there's recipes in the book for people can learn how to do this. Fruits, I am a big fan of fruits. And I think that people that are looking to help their gut feeling access, something that I talk about in the book that I have patients do is cooking the fruit down if they have extra sensitive digestion issues. So they're almost making a compote, like the inside of a pie without the pie part, without the crust part. And it makes it more digestible and it can be really delicious. It's like eating a pie. You can drizzle some honey on it uh, and have that as sort of your sweet uh, part of your meal. So I think those are something else to think about. Um, and I think that, as I mentioned earlier with the, the protein sources, you don't have to necessarily go to the higher end uh, health food stores. You can, there's a lot of lower cost, more accessible ways to get chicken and fish and beef and plant-based protein options with uh, some resources. Like, I mean, Aldi and Costco, Target, Walmart. I mean, I live in a small town in Western Pennsylvania and I see organic better for you options. And you don't have to be perfect. I think that's a big thing here too, is that pragmatically, I'd rather people just lean into this stuff and not worry about the minutia. Don't worry about the next level stuff if it's not within your budget or if it's overwhelming for you because the body's amazingly resilient. If you just lean into these practices, the body will do a lot of the work for you. You know, I agree. And you mentioned that you don't have to necessarily shop at, you know, an Erewhon or Whole Foods. You know, you've got people on on Instagram like, uh, Bobby Parrish, Flav City, or Clean Kitchen Nutrition. And basically their whole feed of reels, they're going to Walmart, they're going to Aldi, they're going to Costco, they're going to Target. And all these places have wild, they have grass-fed, they have pasture-raised, they have organic, and they've got deals all the time. Um, so in closing, what do you think we're going to be talking about a year from now? I think the conversation around the feeling side of gut feelings is just beginning because the research that's going to be coming out of how profoundly influential things like unresolved trauma and chronic stress, how is it impacting our human health? We're just beginning to understand it. I just think we're just beginning to scratch the surface. And in our culture, we are, we've come a long way with normalizing mental health care. We've come a 
I wouldn't say a long way with autoimmune care at all, sadly. I think that there's so much medical gaslighting for my people that are struggling with autoimmunity. And that's something else that I talk about in the book quite a bit about. But at least there's awareness around autoimmunity. I think that's some of ground that we've made in the past 13 plus years that I've been in this space professionally. So I feel like what we're going to be talking about more is what role do things like chronic stress and shame and trauma, how does that impact our physical health in the form of these issues, autoimmune problems, inflammation issues, and mental health issues today. So that's, it's, it's important because we have to know what we're dealing with to do something about it. So if, when people start having these aha, aha moments and think, wow, it's not just, I'm not just weak and broken and there's not just something wrong with me. I can actually deal with these issues and start to feel better and heal. That's very, very promising for me. Agreed. Well, congrats on the book, Gut Feelings. Thank you so much. Thank you.